Soul Conversations. We are three Korean adoptees that talk about anything and everything through the adoptee lens. I'm Kara. And I'm Benny. And I'm Shanae. And this is Season 3, Episode 11. Here on Soul Conversations, we talk a lot about our identity as Koreans, as Americans, as adoptees. And we also really want to explore a lot of the intersectionalities, and that's what makes us so excited to have our guest this week. Our guest is fellow adoptee Tracy Hobson, and when she reached out to us, I literally was like jumping up and down. I think she had reached out to us in response to our episode about whiteness, and she shared a little bit about her story and her background. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Please come on the podcast. We have been dying to have this perspective. Um, So we are just over the moon and thrilled to learn and to hear her story um, and to really dive into what I think is going to be a great episode Um, So without any further ado, this is Tracy Hobson. And Tracy, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Tracy, if you wouldn't mind, we like to have our guests share a little bit about their origin story, their journey to where they are at this point in life. Um, And your story is just so beautiful and so inspiring and emotional. Um, But if you would like to share a little bit about where you've been, where you are, we'd appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, First, I guess I'm considered a first-generation adoptee. I'm an old lady, so I was born in 57, was adopted in 1961, Um, considered a first-generation adoptee. I apparently, as I understand it, um, did not go into an orphanage until I was two. At that time, I was actually adopted sight unseen by an African-American military family who happened to be stationed in Japan at the time. Uh, During that time, the reason I was, I guess, matched up with an African-American family is that their thought process was they wanted to put children with families that look similar to them. My parents never saw a picture of me. They never came to the orphanage to meet me. Um, they flew, the military flew them from Tokyo to Seoul. Um, the orphanage, the agency bought me to them. I went back to Tokyo uh, to live for a while um, and then came to the States um, in the early 60s. Grew up in suburbia, Virginia. Uh, of course, primarily in the African-American community because that's what you know my parents were. My parents did try, or at least my father tried very hard to make sure that I did not lose the Korean heritage or my roots. And for that, I will forever be grateful to him for. Unfortunately, he died when I was 18. And so, but lost the language when I came to the U.S., could not speak any English at all, would only eat raw egg and milk and bread. So it took me a long time to be willing to eat anything else. So part of my journey, I just returned back to Seoul for the first time in May uh, of last year um, to start my birth 
family search. I had been at it off and on for about 30 years, particularly when I had my first child. It really, really aided me quite a bit. Um, you know, the doctors ask you, what's your medical history? Don't know. What's your family history? Don't know. Um, and it really bothered me from that standpoint. So off and on over 30 years, I had been trying, uh, didn't get anywhere. What really, really pushed the issue is my kids noticed that there was always something off. You know, there was always something um, that was underneath the surface. Um, I raised them to really appreciate the Korean background. Um, they appreciated it. They loved it. They were very proud of it. Uh, but they could always tell that there was a, a sense of sadness, I guess. Um, and my daughter, my younger daughter, actually gave me the trip to Korea um, as a gift. Um, we spent six weeks there on the ground trying to do birth family search. Unfortunately, did not find my mother as that I was looking for. They did do a documentary on me in Seoul. Um, still pushing forward, still in contact with the agencies in Korea, trying to finish out that search. Now in the process of trying to recover my Korean citizenship, and that's kind of two minute version of journey, short version. Wow, I have, I have so many questions. So y'all stop me because I'm about to just like jump in. Please, <laughs> come on, let's do it. <laughs> so Tracy, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, I kind of shared earlier vulnerably and I'll share with the full listeners here that this is my first time meeting someone with this type of story. And um, that's why I'm so excited to learn from you. You you told it so so eloquently in kind of this timeline fashion. So I want to like rewind. Okay. And I just want to ask like, you know, you mentioned growing up in Virginia, like I'd love to start, or let me start with Japan actually. So how long were you in Japan for? I was only in Japan for about a year, a little over a year. Okay. So maybe not a ton of memories there. Not a ton Which of memories. Um, and what's really interesting is, um, I went through a hypnosis while I was in Korea oh, and love that. realized that for some reason, a lot was blocked out um, naturally, understandably. So I do not remember a lot about Japan, unfortunately, but there's, and I'm sure for all of us as adoptees, right? You feel this tug, this really strong tug um, to, to go back to Korea, to, to be there and yeah. So not a lot about, not a lot of memories of Japan. Well, then let's go to Virginia mm -hmm. then. What was it like growing up in a, in a Black and African-American community? Did you get questions from kids or parents or just, you know, we share a lot about how like growing up in a white community, we were always called a Chinese kid and like people pull their eyes back at us. And like a lot of times I want to unfortunately associate that with whiteness and blame whiteness, but Tell us, you know, what your experience was like during kind of that adolescent time. Very, very similar. I got bullied a lot, a lot, um, more than I'd probably be willing to admit. Um, but same thing, got mercifully teased for being different. Right. Um, looked different. Um, I was a very shy kid, uh, very withdrawn. Um always worried about being rejected, always worried about being, you know, abandoned. So I try really, really hard to please everybody. Um, oh. uh, stifled my voice for, for 
I was well into adulthood before I realized that I had a voice that I should use. But growing up, it, it, it was it was hard. It was really hard um, because I was so different and I was constantly reminded of it. <laughs> constantly. My family, thank goodness, my extended family never made me feel any different, but it was always those, the, the others, you know, that just, um, yeah, horrible bully. Did you ever talk to your parents about that experience or were you just totally shut off from sharing it with them? I was shut off from sharing it with them. Um, and, you know, I often wonder now, looking back, if maybe they kind of realized it, but didn't want to talk about it. Um, I can remember the first time that I, I approached my mother about wanting to find my family. And I just remember how angry she got, how she was incredibly, um, and I couldn't understand at the time. And, and, and it frightened me. Uh, I was probably 13, 14. And so I put it away from, from my mind because I thought, okay, I can't do this because I'll get rejected again. I'll be abandoned again. So let me just put this away. But I, I just remember my, my dad really tried. I mean, he would cook Asian food for me. Um, he bought me books on Korea, you know, but my mom was very, very different about it. And it, it, I have two, two adopted brothers um, that were biological to them. Um, so just I'm not close to them now at all. So, yeah, it, it was tough much closer to my extended family, my cousins, you know, much, much closer to them than to my immediate family. I'm curious to know, because not only were you growing up predominantly within a black community, but if I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but timeline wise, right, you were growing up during the civil rights movement, largely. And I just am wondering, you know, especially now, as we see these conversations about solidarity and division between black and Asian communities. And, you know, we hear talk about how white supremacy orchestrates things. I'm so curious to hear your perspective, how your experience shaped your perspective. You know, um, I, I spent a lot of time defending my mixed heritage, um, especially during that time. You know, people wanted to make me identify as black. And for me, that was always a struggle. And it was like, but I can't, I can't identify with one side or the other because I'm both. Right. Um, and, and internally it was, it was confusing. So it was like, well, why are people making me trying to make me not be Korean or trying to make me more black? Uh, but at the same time, they're giving me grief because I'm half Korean, half black. So it was a lot of just confusion for me. And, and during the civil rights movement, while I appreciated and I understood what was happening, I can't really say that I had a, what's the word, a, a, a passion for it. You, you know what I mean? It was just, I couldn't relate in the same way that they did. And and I, I think I used to frustrate some of my friends because I, I, I just could not, I was not at that level. Just like I got other issues, <laughs> so you know, sorry. So, <laughs> were there conversations in your household about, or like, what was the what was the storyline? I guess that your family was telling you about your adoption. Like, we kind of share, like, at least 
I think we had all shared that. Like for me, it was always like, oh, when I was like a baby and probably couldn't even remember, it was always like, this is Korea. This is where you were born. And it was kind of like subliminally like pushed into my head where there was never this moment of like, oh, you're adopted. Like I kind of always knew. Is that like similar? Like what were those conversations like for you as a young child and even into into adolescence? I um I was I, I always knew I was adopted. There was never a time that I was not aware of it. I do remember there was a little boy that was in the same orphanage that I was in. Um, and his parents, he was adopted. <laughs> Funny story. When his parents came to the orphanage to pick him up, they actually saw me and had asked, wanted to adopt me as well at the same time. Wow. Um, and the orphanage basically said, sorry, you know, her parents are coming for her. She's already been adopted out. What they did not realize though, was that they, they were very good friends with my parents and they did not realize that it was my parents that were, um, but anyway, we all were stationed in Tokyo together. And when my parents picked me up and brought me back to Tokyo, um, Keith was already there. And the story that we were told was that we clung to each other so much because we knew each other from the orphanage. Um, mm. Now, fast forward, when we came to the States, they came to the States ahead of, ahead of us. And I lived in Langley, in the Hampton Roads area on the Air Force Base. Um, they were also there for a while. And Keith and I were very, very, very close. And then just suddenly they just kind of disappeared from my life and I couldn't understand what was going on, what was happening, why. Um, and I remember my parents telling me that I could not see him anymore because his parents were afraid that I was going to tell him that he was adopted because I always knew, but apparently oh. he did not. And he oh. was also half black, half Korean. Um, and to this day, um, that really bothers me. It tugs me. I don't know where he is. Would love to find him. I, I still have vivid memories of us sitting on the porch, speaking to each other in Korean, you know. Um, but it, it was that type of thing where it, it was pulled from me because I knew, but I was not supposed to tell him. I can't imagine how hard that must have been just because, you know, you had already suffered loss and already the grief and then to have you know it's like a saving grace it sounds like mm -hmm. that you know you two were able to make that journey that far together and to have you know a piece of something and someone that was familiar and comfortable and safe and then to suddenly inexplicably have that person disappear with no rhyme or reason mm -hmm. and then to sort of be told like oh it's because of you right. you know when it wasn't anything that was your fault i can't even imagine how frustrating and just devastating that must have been and probably still is in some way. It is. I, I think about it constantly and I get emotional about it because um, you're right. I mean, of all the things that were ripped from me, you know, to have that one, that was kind of like my last, you know, real connection. And it was ripped from me for, you know, I had no control over that. So it's just like, you know, losing the language, you know, you, you know, I get angry about it. I've always been angry about it. It's like, something was taken away from me with without my permission you know I feel that constant loss too with the language piece and I feel even like envious that you even had it at one moment like it's funny how it's just like 
I don't even know if I, I think I, I had the story of my very first word, you know, like, oh, ma, like it came out and then it was, you know, mom came in and it's mama, you know, like <laughs> that's the only, the only like story and artifact I have from it. And it has been a struggle of mine, my entire adoptee journey. And I pick up the apps and I had the Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. and I immerse myself in the media. Like I do all the things and it just feels like the impossible mountain to climb. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Kara. I mean, when I was in Korea, I spoke with quite a few adoptees and um, for, adopted from all over the world. And they varied in their mastery of the, of the language. But what was interesting is none of them had Korean as their first language. It was always wherever they were adopted to. English was their second language and Korean was their third. And for the most part, they knew enough to get by, but not necessarily fluent. And when I spoke with a couple of psychologists and they said, well, but think about that. It's, it's natural. You're angry, you're frustrated because you know you should know this language, but you don't. And so in the back of your mind, you're, you're angry at yourself, you know. Um, angry that somebody took it from you, angry that you lost it. So uh, I'm I'm like you now. I'm trying to learn it and I'm Ooh. learning it through K dramas and K pop. <laughs> I'm getting that <laughs> um, the best way. Yeah. Now my younger daughter speaks it really well. She can read and write it. Um, but yeah, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And and that's from you exposing her at an early age. She and, you know, she sought it out. She wow. wanted to, um, my um, two older ones, I think are a little bit afraid. They don't want to, I, I think their thing is they don't want to necessarily disappoint me if they can't pick up the language. Um, so, but yeah, she's, she's, I, I, my hat's off to her. She really helped when we were in Korea because we would have been totally lost. Oh. oh yeah, I remember seeing her in the YouTube video. I was like, okay, she's she's killing it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were just talking that um we feel like we already know you because we watched your video. So uh -huh. it's, it's a great journey. <laughs> yeah, that was you know, and that documentary was really um I I struggled with that because you you you're an open book, right? Um, right. And uh, very vulnerable, very afraid um, how people are going to take it, how people, um, even when I went to Korea, one of the things that really was on my mind when I first went was how was I going to be received in Korea, being a mixed. Mm -hmm. um, um, it, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful experience. Everyone was extremely kind. Uh, they were more angry at me for not knowing the language than they were for me being. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it was heavy on my mind when I first went. Yeah. Is what was going to happen. You know, because you, you grow up feeling like a man without a country, right? Yeah. You don't totally fit in the U.S. Don't totally fit into Cree either. So where, where really are you? Yeah. Tracy, um, you mentioned in your uh, responses to our questionnaire that 
when you were adopted, there was less than 20 black and Korean children actually adopted in the world. And then, you know, fast forward to all the things you went through. And then in the peak of the 80s, where there's a lot of Korean adoptees being um, brought back to the United States. Um, and then fast forward to today. Um, I'm just curious to know, you know, the state of affairs of, of things when you think about, you know, uh, people who are transnational and transracial adoptees in America. What have you seen over the years that has changed? And then how does that, uh, how does your experiences translate how you interact with your, um, with your children, you know, and, and teach them about your cultures and hopefully, you know, want to continue that journey on yourself, but also bring your, your children with that with you? You know, I think what I've noticed is, or the difference is, um, it's not as shameful. It used to be a sense of shame about it. You know, you hit it, you wanted to, to assimilate so badly. Um, I think now it's totally different. It's something to be very, very proud of. And for me with my kids, I wanted them to be proud of that. I wanted them to understand that they were multidimensional, you know, and it made them unique and made them special. And I think they always felt that way. They felt special. I did not feel that way growing up. I was taught to kind of subdue that part of me. Yeah. And I did not want that for my kids at all. I finally have learned after all these years that it is something to be very, very, very proud of. I, I, I can, uh, you know, just even into adulthood, not really, not denying it, but not really talking about it either. You know, unless someone specifically asked me the question. And do you ever feel, um, you know, today as we all grow um, and, and go through our own personal journeys, uh, today, you know, what do you consider yourself as your identification? Do you still feel um, a lot of those questions being asked? And, you know, how do you respond to those things? And what do you hope that people come away with, you know, when they really truly want to get to know you? You know, that I am... I am a person like everyone else, that my circumstance um, is part of who I am. Being an adoptee, being multiracial is all part of me. And I should be accepted for all of that. It's always been tough, but now my voice, I'm much stronger in voicing that and saying, if you cannot accept all of it, and if you try to make me choose, then we have no conversation, right? Do not make me choose. Do not try to get me to go one side or the other because it's never going to happen, right? It is me. And I'm finally proud of me, <laughs> the whole of me. And that's what I would want for any adoptee, particularly any multiracial adoptee, is be proud of it. You know, just be very proud of it. Yeah, the obsession with people to put mixed race people in one box or the other drives me crazy. And like, that's, you know, while I think Benny and Shanae and I, you know, deal with the whole like, oh, we, we feel like culturally and maybe from a heritage perspective, it's hard to pick. But when it comes down to it, we're 100% quote unquote Korean Right. So we don't have to deal with some of that. But I don't understand. Like, I've even had people come to me 
and try to discredit mixed races people's half <laughs> thinking they're in good company. And I'm like, oh, you don't know who you're messing with. Bro. Exactly. Like, like you think that I'm going to come in and say like, oh yeah, that person's less Korean because you know, she's half white or like whatever. <laughs> it's like that. I mean, from what I've known of my other mixed race friends, we do share a lot of same challenges of always feeling kind of in between so it's mm -hmm. like I, in a way i feel some camaraderie with mixed race people even though i'm not a mixed race person because we share that same struggle of exactly. needing to pick but exactly. it is very different i recognize that but it's like i i just don't understand the obsession with non-mixed people always wanting mixed people to choose or to say one or the other when it's like if you're literally like half and half and you're looking at it, it's like it's a it's like, look at numbers, look at a pie chart, bro. Like I'm half this and I'm <laughs> half that. Like, I don't know how else you want me to explain it to you. Exactly. But, but it's like, no, but like, which one really? It's like, <laughs> uh, do you need me to pull the graph up again? Like I just said it. So I just, it's more of a rant than a pile on of, <laughs> of, I, I can't imagine how frustrating that must've been your whole life to, it, to get that, you know? And you hit the nail on the head, Kara. It is, it drives me crazy, even to this day. You know, and you get the questions, well, what are you? You know, it was like, well, last I checked, I was a person, but you no. Know, right. <laughs> right. But all, all, constantly, um, what are you? You know, what are you mixed with? Um, just stupid questions. You know, it's like, well, okay. So, and it used to, used to push me into a, um, to be even more withdrawn because I didn't know how to answer the question. Right. Um, people can be cruel. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, uh, and, and maybe they don't realize the impact of their comment or their questions, but they have no, people just don't understand how horrible it can be. It can make a person feel. And even I feel like when people make like the well-meaning comments, like the fetishization comments, especially I feel like about mixed people um, and especially females, you know, they say like, oh, you're so beautiful because you're mixed or, you know, like, yeah. oh, you're so exotic looking. And it's just like, is this supposed to make me feel good? Because it's really offensive, it you know, and then they're like, oh, I'm trying to give you a compliment. And you're like, no, no, no. You need to look up the definition of a compliment. Like, this is not... <laughs> how it's supposed to be. Absolutely, Shanae. I can remember in my 20s, you know, dating and so forth. And um, at that time, that whole exotic thing was, you know, the flavor of the day, you know, and you're right. I mean, you don't know, you question whether you're an object or whether you're truly being accepted for who you are. So absolutely, just used to drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah, it still does. So, uh, and even my kids, I mean, as, as liberal as the world should be now, or is trying to be, my kids have gotten the same type of backlash in the African-American community. Uh, and it, it breaks my heart. I mean, I can, my son was in college in Atlanta in a work study program and a gentleman that actually worked for the university walked into the office where my son was working and literally said to him, hey, Chinky. And that's how oh, he addressed him. And it was just like, um, now luckily my son probably handled it much better than me because I probably would have really 
<laughs> it would not have been pretty, but he was very professional in how he had, he addressed it. But um, and he waited a long time before he told me what happened because, of course, mm-hmm. when I found out, um, I did make a trip back to the university and posted up and was like, "Look, mm-hmm. I, this person needs to be fired." And he did. He ended up the the gentleman ended up uh, making a formal apology to my son. But I was livid. I was like, "Who does that now?" You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but my son did tell him that first of all, he was not Chinese, but Side yeah. that, you know. Mm-hmm. Tracy, I'm interested in your perspective. Um, the state of America in the last, say, five years or so, race has always been uh, a topic, at least in my in my day and age of just growing up in a small town. But I'm curious to know in the more recent years when race has really become magnified even more to the wider public and has been discussed more in the wider public than people who are just people of color or mixed. Mm-hmm. You have a unique perspective. What goes through your mind in those, those years when we felt really divided? What are your feelings? How do you talk to those about your, to your friends and even your family? Just understanding being in your unique, unique situation. You know, and it goes back to honoring both sides, right? the backlash on Asians, you know, where they were saying, um, stop Asian hate. And I had some friends that were like, well, you know, what about the black lives matter? And I was like, but it's all important. I mean, I, I'm not going to deny one side or the other. And it it used to drive me still does. Sometimes the conversation can become really, really uncomfortable because again, there are some people that want to push me one way or the other. And it's like, no, I, I both, all of this is important to me. All of this makes me upset. All of this, um, it, I'm not going to side one way or the other. One side is not more important than the other. It breaks my heart that when I talk, when people talk about the, the, the division between blacks and Asians, and I'm thinking, it, n- n- no, I don't buy off on that one. You know, I, I can't appreciate that. And and sometimes I get overwhelmed with it. I'm confused. It's like, well, you know, am I the abnormal one where I kind of stay in the middle? I'm like, no, I'm not going to lean one way or the other. It, both sides. Um, I love both sides and I will not choose. So yeah. I, I love that answer. And that's, you know, that's a great response to really uh, high intensity conversations. Uh, I'm curious to know, how do you manage that aspect in everyday life, going to the grocery store or anything like that, your daily life? Is there anything that you navigate where you're one side or the other, or do you try to go right down the middle? Um, I go one side. You know, it's a thing of called what we would call code switching, right? Depending upon situation I'm in, I may do the code switch. Depending if it's a conflict situation, yeah, I might be lean more way the other. When I'm driving, sometimes I'm <laughs> pull that card as well. But I, I, I think if you, it's basically if you walk into a room, you read the room, right? you figure out where you who your audience is, um, and you act accordingly. I guess, if you will, there are some days I just don't care. I'm just going to be no matter what that day. But there are very specific times when, yes, I have to read that room. Um, and, and I finally have gotten to the point where if I'm uncomfortable in that room, I, I, I will leave. 
Yeah. If I, if I don't want to, if I feel like I'm being pushed into a corner, if I feel like I'm being forced one way or the other, then I'll just remove myself. I have um, a t-shirt that says phenomenally Asian. And it's very interesting because whenever I wear it out to the grocery store, um, you know, people are looking at it and they're looking at me and they're like, well, I think maybe you are, but, but why do you have that shirt on? So it's, it can be, <laughs> sometimes it can be comical because you know they want to say something they want to ask, but they won't. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have one more follow-up question mm-hmm. on that. And I'll let, I'll let someone else ask questions. But for me personally, I, I continue to struggle with this on an every, every day, especially in professional settings or work settings. Um, and I guess the preface to this is, you know, when I was younger, most like everyone on this call, um, we were told to do certain things or look a certain way, and maybe not explicitly, but it was implied. But a lot of times it was explicit too. Let's not sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me personally, as I get older, I thankfully eventually started to feel good and confident about myself. And there's always going to be situations, Tracy, where you have to read the room. Yep. You have to know your audience. Sometimes you have to give in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But where I struggle a lot is... I've worked so hard to feel accepted and accept myself and feel good about myself after everyone has told me not to. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you navigate those situations uh, when it's more strategic to read the room versus being comfortably authentic in yourself and not throwing away a big part of who you are just to appease others. Um, Benny, I can so relate to what you're saying because it's taken me a long time to, to, to gain that confidence. And in my job today, I'm sometimes the only woman in the room, definitely the only minority, um, particularly mixed race. Um, I've been in conversations in, in meetings where someone made a comment and you know, you're on a conference call. They don't see your face. They don't see who who's on the call. Um, and a, a person made a comment that was pretty racist. I, and I will call a person on it. I, I have finally learned to just be able to say, that's not cool. And I, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who's on this call? Um, and usually it will shut people down. Um, and it took me a long time to get there. I, I was like you for so long. I would just let people say whatever they want to say, you know, shrunk back. Um, but now I'm, I'm at a point in my life where it's, I, I don't care what you think. And it's taken me a long time to get there, a long time to get there. Um Betty, I'm so glad you asked that. I was literally talking to my therapist about this today, not so much in the realm of like racial matters, but just accepting corporate life, (laughs) accepting the game. The word that I started to use was indifference. Like I'm at this point of indifference where Mm -hmm. like, I don't feel the need to get in here and change the way things are. And I don't feel the need to be your DE&I poster child. Like, I just want to come in and do my job and make my money and leave because I've already tried doing that and I got literally nowhere from doing it. 
So I'm just going to come in and be like everybody else. And, you know, in, in a way I have more peace in that indifference, but then he even asked me, he's like, you know, how do you think that would feel like long-term if you kept doing that? I'm like, I'd probably end up being like hating myself. <laughs> like It's like, it feels good in the moment to submit to the pressures of code switching and just be like, or to, to be your authentic self rather, because I actually think being your authentic self at work is a trap for people of color. <laughs> being your authentic self is for white people at work. I'm sorry. Like that'll be the thing that goes on record that I'll get hated for. But like, we don't get afforded that to be our authentic self. And I know every place wants to preach it and every place wants to say it's how you show up in your best way. It's like, yeah, we all agree, but we don't have that luxury. Anyway, side side rant, but it was this idea of where is the, where is the happy medium between recognizing the realities of a situation and understanding you have to look out for yourself, which sometimes means putting your authentic self aside. Sometimes that means code switching. Sometimes that means just straight up faking it sometimes because it's just the easier thing to do. But then when is that point of diminishing return when you're like, oh, I just keep letting myself down and I never stand up for myself. And now I find myself back in a lull. <laughs> and I don't know that I know the answer of where the happy medium is. Well, you know, I, I think for me, um, I got to a place where I don't have a problem being my authentic self anymore. Um, and you're right. There are some times where it's just like, okay, this is not even worth a response. Um, right. But if something hits me really hard, um, I, I, I have no problem now speaking on it. I, I probably get in trouble a lot at work. My boss gets on me all the time. It's like, well, some things you just can't. <laughs> can't. <laughs> um, but you know, I walk away and, and, and I feel fine. And, and it, I have to chuckle sometimes because sometimes if I am my authentic self and I say something, it can be something as simple as, do you realize, and I have done this in meetings with some very high powered people in the room and just point blank said, do you realize how stupid that you just, you sound right now? You know, it's just, um, and, and that was me being me, you know, um, rooms gets quiet, but people back, they suddenly become like, oh my gosh, she's really a strong person and she, she's not one to be messed with. And so you, you pick and choose, you do pick and choose when you let that out, um, to let them know back off. Um, but it has taken me a long time, a long time. And there are times when, yeah, I just, I don't address it. I'm indifferent on purpose, right? It doesn't serve me to do anything else. I love that. It's the on purpose piece mm -hmm. that, thank you. See, that was the missing piece of my session today. Um, <laughs> I was like, sometimes the indifference doesn't feel good, but it's like, yes, choose the indifference on purpose when it serves you. Mm -hmm. And it's what you need to do to get through the moment or the day. And then do your best in the other times to stay true to yourself exactly. and just to have the discernment to know when those two things are. But I'll admit, I'm not always the best at knowing when those two things are, <laughs> are uh, separated. Sometimes I'm like, this is a moment I'm supposed to fight. It's like, no girl, like that was what, <laughs> that was one you were supposed to let go actually. Right. <laughs> you know, but this, my trip to Solvo, I think did a lot for me in that space is, uh, appreciating myself 
you know, um, talking to other adoptees and things in of that nature. So yeah, it, 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 it can be freeing to just like go there sometimes. It is kind of a backtrack. So we talk a lot about when growing up in white families, there's oftentimes bias that gets put on us kind of unknowingly, right? And then of being a person of color and taking on that bias that is created um, within white culture can sometimes be really confusing because you're like, oh, I don't remember that thought or that experience being there, but like it's always kind of been mm -hmm. back there. What biases do you feel like you have racially from growing up as a mixed person, growing up with black parents in America, like I'm like, what do you think about white people? Like, it's just like, what was the narrative going on in your household about all those things? Um, I can't say that in in my household there was a lot of uh, simply because I grew up in a military family, right? So um, all bets are off. I mean, you're you're surrounded by a lot of different people anyway. I think though, unconsciously, I was pushed towards the African-American culture. I don't think it was necessarily anything that was consciously done. I just think that was just the nature of the beast, I guess, at that time, you know. Um, I did get caught up in the stereotypes and the Asian stereotypes. You know, you're supposed to be smart because you're Asian, you know, you're supposed to be, you know, bad driver because you're Asian. You're supposed to be, you know, submissive because you're Asian. So I did get caught up in that as time went on. Um, that was kind of pushed on me, those biases. And some of them I fed into, I just got, I'm sure like all, all of us where you fall into it, you fall into that trap not necessarily because you want to, but just because it's kind of beat into you more so than anything else, you know? Um, but yeah, those were, it was more the biases on the Asian side than on the African-American side. It, it, even, <laughs> and any anybody listening that's African-American appreci can appreciate this, down to hair, you know, it's the good hair, right? Because, my hair is different. All the biases lean towards the Asian side. You know, you've got um, jet black hair. You've got, you know, um, like I said, the smartness. The yeah, it was. It was. I mean, I don't even. I can't even say anymore. Yeah, the biases were definitely there, pushed on the Asian side. So. I'm curious to know Tracy because you know I know Benny and Karen. I talk a lot about. Um, just growing up without any racial mirrors whatsoever, because we were, you know, Korean adoptees and predominantly white spaces. And I'm curious if you felt any difference being raised in a family that at least shares part of your racial identity. Did you still feel like you were totally removed and totally othered and separate? Or was there, were there moments of, like just a little bit of feeling of belonging or, or seeing yourself reflected in those that were around you? You know, I, admittedly, I always felt different no matter what. And it's because of that other half, you know, um, never felt totally comfortable 
was not totally uncomfortable, but definitely not totally comfortable. It, it was always there. You know, it was just that elephant in the room, so to speak. Yeah. Kind of along the same lines, Tracy, I want to go back to your visit to Korea and your your birth family search. And I'm I'm wondering because a lot of times guests who've come on the podcast, and I know even amongst the three of us, whenever we talk about birth family searches, there's a lot of emphasis around finding our birth mother specifically. And I know in your documentary, you know, you went through the the hypnosis and there was just a very powerful scene where you, you know, had visions of your mother and this woman and you and you talked about it. And it was just so such a strong memory that had been unlocked. But I was wondering because the the documentary is in Korean. Um, so I watched it on YouTube with the like auto translate, which you know some of it got real weird. Um, <laughs> so for any of our viewers who go and listen to it, like just know that there are definitely some things that are not accurate in the translations, I'm sure. Um, but because you're, it seems like you went in knowing that your biological father was likely an American GI. Did you or do you have a stronger pull to feel like you want to find your birth father as well or more so than your birth mother? Did that influence you at all? Always stronger to find my birth mother. Now, as a result of this whole search, I did find my birth father, Um, but that was not my I won't say it wasn't a priority. It was, it was never as important to me as finding my birth mother. Um, because I wanted to know why, what happened, you know? Um, and you always feel this sense of there was something wrong with me. Um, especially knowing that she had me for a couple of years before giving me up. It's like, well, what happened? What, what was wrong with me? Was it because I was mixed, you know, um, so, yeah, but I have found my my biological father um, and that family as a, I won't say a byproduct, but as all part of that search. So, um, so when we came back to the States, literally, I got back to the States and like t- about two weeks later, t- three weeks later, I got the call that they had found him. So, yeah. Um, Unfortunately, he died in 1980, um, but I did find out I have two sisters, um, a huge extended family. I have one surviving uncle um, who I've met, actually, um, have been accepted by that family. No questions. I mean, just open arms. Um, And they all, we've talked about the fact, I've talked with them about the fact that it's still important to me. Um, While it's great that I found my father, I'm really, really excited about that. I still am the pull for my mother to find her. Uh, I remember coming, even before I left, I talked a lot with the agency and they warned me. They said, when you go back to the States, you're going to struggle. Um, with whether you should come back to Korea or whether you should stay in the States. Um, and I, I couldn't, I knew it was there. That feeling was there. Um, and, and they are absolutely right. When I came back and it's still heavy on my mind and I do have intentions of going back to Korea to live. 
for a couple of years. Um, as soon as I get my the, my citizenship recovered, um, it, it's the pull gets stronger and stronger and stronger every year. I'm sorry, I'm going to get emotional about this, but yeah, um, it's really important for me to find my my mom, um, that family. So, um, and, and I worry about if I do find them, will I be rejected because I'm mixed? I, you know, that's in the back of my mind too, but at least I will, I will have my truth, my whole truth. Um, and that's what I'm after right now is my truth. I feel that same way, Tracy. I feel that pull. I feel it more often the older I get. And I often think about my life and where I want to go and what I want to do, because it was always a dream of mine to also live there. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of times where I think that I missed that opportunity. And it's just like, says who? Like, you know, I had it in my head of being this like young 20 something single, you know, and it's just like, that's one way it could happen and it could happen any other way. And I just thought like, you know, retiring Korea, like I would just, you know, it would come full circle, you right. know, everything for me. And I right. think about that. And I think the more, the older I get, the more I appreciate and understand the relationship of blood and heritage and geography and candidly, maybe that was something that I convinced myself over time didn't mean anything or didn't matter because it innately meant that I was without, or I was missing something even more so. And now I think I'm reaching that maturity where it's like, no, I, I do believe those things and I have been without them and, and it's okay. I don't have to feel guilty or ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. um, but this idea of being on the ground within the earth and just being in touch with the, the land and those things in Korea, like it feels way stronger and way more intense every year that goes by for me. I can't tell you how full I felt. Um, yes. Being in Korea, um, just an incredible calm, an incredible peace um, being in Korea. And when I got back, the minute I landed, um, I literally I felt this cloud come over because it was like, I don't want to be back, you know? Um, and I couldn't for the life of me, I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, this is not normal. You know, why am I feeling like this? And um, there people from Korea actually reached out to me about a week later and to check on me because they were worried. That's what I was going to feel. Um, they were very, very concerned. Um, but I cannot tell you um, just the overwhelming feeling uh, when I was in Seoul. Um, you, I really felt home. Um, and I, ca I can't explain it any differently or, or um, definitely felt at peace there. Um, and I will go back. I mean, I, I definitely will go back. Um, so my my plan is by the end of next year, uh, I'll do this podcast again, but I'll be doing it. From yes. Yes. Earmark it right yeah. here. Exactly. Right here. Yes. You said it first. I love it. Uh -huh. um, yeah. I would encourage everybody, you know, 
I, you know, I, I read stories of people that have found their bio families and part of me is incredibly happy for them, but part of me is incredibly jealous too. It's like, why can't I have that same success? Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the one thing I learned being in soul is you understand the concept or the, or the concept of nurture over nature. Uh, I'm mm. sorry, nature over nurture becomes very, very, very real. Um, hmm. I was there and certain things that were around us, um, certain things that were happening, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the nature, you know? Like my kids have always done the Asian squat, like un- totally, <laughs> and I didn't really pay attention to it until we were in Korea and it was just natural. And I was like, wow. Um, little things like that, you know, just, um, you suddenly realize that it's in you, it's deep in you, regardless, you know, whether you're, were adopted it as a baby or whether you were definitely the, the root is there. Uh, and, and I found that comforting. I found that incredibly comforting, you know, uh, it explains so much for me. It made it just put a lot of, of the puzzle pieces together. It's like, ah, oh, got it now. You know, I did not lose it. No. Those are the little things that when I talk to non-adoptee friends about the adoptee experience that are just so hard to illustrate how much weight goes into those things. And we talked a little bit about that in other like nature and nurture conversations, but like, it is the small things and, and hearing you talk about it, it's like, yeah, when you when you grow up within your biological or your natural family, you see all the rationale for everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have this hair from such and such. You like this food because it was passed down X amount of generations. We do this a certain way because blah, blah, blah. Like everything is explained to you through history and generations. And you would think that wouldn't mean much. But when you don't have that and you're left with so many gaps in the story and you're left with so many gaps of the rationale, it's amazing how, at least from what I've experienced and what I've heard from my other adoptee friends, we just fill in the blanks with like self-rejection notions. And Mm -hmm. like, it's like those spaces don't get filled with like warm and fuzzy things. Mm -hmm. Those spaces get filled in then with the trauma (laughs) and starting these narratives that aren't real from our past experiences. And then when these things do come to light and you do understand why you like certain food or why you look a certain way, it's like, to me, I envision it of like making all the bad narratives go away. You know, like it's like, as you fill in the real Mm -hmm. information, the narratives and the make believe and all the stories that we've had to tell ourselves disappear. And it's like, that's the wand I'm looking for to wave is how do I get rid of all this shit that doesn't actually belong in my head, but was actually created as a coping mechanism because I was left with so many questions as a child growing up. And and that's what Korea did for me. It got, it got rid of all of that, all of that. I would tell anybody go back just once, just once, you know, um, absolutely. And I love that your children are involved and along for the ride as well. They are. Um, 
they they love it they appreciate it i mean <laughs> just yeah they are they are really into it so and 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 they have seen that sense of peace come over me since going um and for them that was really important for them is to see that sense of peace it was so beautiful to see your daughter in that documentary and just see how supportive she was and and just how she was there, like right by your side. And to now know that she had orchestrated that trip for you and paid for it. And you had shared on your form that you're, you have, I hope it's okay that I share this. You have a tattoo that says indomitable spirit and hangul um, and that your children inspired you to get it. And I just think that it's so amazing, but I really am curious. So I'm, I'm a new parent um, to a little girl and she's 10 months and I, you know, you had talked at the beginning that they have a sensitivity to you and your story because there was a, a little bit of a palpable sadness that mm-hmm. they sensed from you. And I just am wondering, you know, because as adoptee parents, we talk a lot about projecting our trauma and, you know, how do we have this conversation with our kids about us being adopted and, you know, the sort of like ghost family that we want them to know, but they might not ever know. And then we're trying to fill in gaps for ourselves. We're trying to fill in gaps for them and not damage them in some way, you know, or we're afraid of damaging them, even if we can't damage them. It's, you know, and so the circles go, but what has it been like? What was that parenting journey like for you raising your three children with your story I held back a lot with my kids and I think that was one of the things that they saw that sadness where um there was shame I was ashamed of my story um to a certain extent um I, I didn't know really who I was if that makes sense. Um, you know, to Carr's point, there was always that gap, that always that question, um, the narrative. And that came across, I think, to them. Even being able to express emotion. Um, I love them dearly, and they knew it. it. would take a bullet any day of the week. But just, as they would say that, they could see I struggled with sharing who I really was. Um, And that was because I didn't know, you know, who I really was. Um, So, and I am close to to my children, incredibly close to them. Um, Much different than my relationship with my adopted parents. Um, And I think that that was always in the back of my mind is I refuse to have that same level of relationship that I wanted my kids to be able to talk to me, for us to have fun, for us to be able to be open with each other. Um, And and that drove me a lot. I wanted them to never feel the, um, I wanted them to always be confident, um, always be strong, always be brave because I wasn't. and that, that was the basis of how I raised them. It's like, I want you to be everything that I am not, you know? Um, and they are very courageous. They're very brave. They're very, I, I, one thing that I always taught them coming up was say anything you want to say, just say it with respect. You know, you, you are allowed to disagree. Uh, and they did. They always, they would disagree with me. They did it very respectfully. Um, there was nothing they could not say to me. 
um, as long as it was done with respect. And to this day, they're the same way. And thank goodness they're good people. <laughs> they're kind. They're a great mom. They're a great mom. Though. Thank you. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, I'm going to steal that saying. Like, <laughs> Paint it on Clara's wall. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> my, you know, the biggest thing is when they would get a little bit out of line, my, my one thing to this day, they use it back on me sometimes, is I always say to them, I think you want to start over. When they were about to cross that line, they were mm. to, you know, I would just stop and just say, I think you want to start over. Um, and and so it's the joke now. If I give the look, they they automatically go, okay, okay, I'll start over. <laughs> so. I heard that so much from my mom and dad in my teenage years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. I want to try that at work and see how that like. There you go. <laughs> There you go, right? Conversation. I think you need to clarify. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, help yeah. me help me understand. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. When I was in Korea and we were thinking about who was going to go with me, whether I was going to go by myself or um, one of the big things that was important to me is that whoever went with me, I could be totally emotional. And I think my youngest daughter was probably the best one to go with me because I didn't, as emotional as it was, I didn't want to feel stifled with that. And I'm incredibly grateful to her to let her see me at that most vulnerable point. Tracy, you've been so generous with your time. I have one question. Maybe uh, Karen should have one more too as well, but um, I'm curious to know, um, You've built your life here. You work so hard. You've been through so much. Uh, your family is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like there's an American dream? Do you call America home? Do you call career home? And do you think that home is a place or a destination? Or do you think it's a mindset? I think home is a mindset. Um, I, I don't, I won't say that. Um, how do I answer that where it, it makes sense? I don't want to. Uh, America is my home just because I live here, right? But my mindset is Korea. I, I only became a naturalized American citizen in 2009. So, and I'm grateful to my parents. My parents did not get my citizenship at adoption because they always felt like that was a decision that I needed to make. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. I probably would have never gotten my American citizenship had it not been for circumstance, right? I lost all of my ID and I had to. So to answer that question, I would say America is my home because I live here, but definitely my heart is in Korea. That realization for me is um, really something special. So that I finally am able to say that out loud proudly um, and without hesitation. Um, I was always afraid to say it, but yeah. Tracy, you're a woman after my own heart. I'm <laughs> over here. I've got big old watery eyes because I um, I very much like identify with that same feeling of, you know, there's even times in my life where I called myself a proud American and there 
are certainly things that I am proud of, but I think I've always felt that it's not home. And if it weren't for my family and my upbringing and my entire circumstance being here, it would not ever be my choice. Mm -hmm. And just like you had said, I think I had a really, and even saying it now, it feels very vulnerable to say it, knowing that my family might hear it. People that know me might hear it because it's a really strange thing to verbalize. And it's a really strangely vulnerable thing to say, because I do think it goes back to that whole, we, at least for me, there was so much shame in my unknown that there was just so many things that I was afraid to admit or even explore because I didn't even want to know. And now I'm realizing with the openness of exploring it, how long I had been wasting of just like, I'm Korean and I should have been saying it from day one. And I'm mad that I spent as much time as I did questioning it, trying to validate it, trying to look to others to validate Mm -hmm. it, which is the most infuriating part of it. It's like, who the hell are they to call me Korean or not Korean? Exactly. That validation (laughs) can only come from yourself. And I was looking to everything and everyone else for it for so long. And now it's gotten to the point where it is that, that piece, like you were saying of like, my mindset, my heart, my spirit, it very much feels tied to a place that is not where I am at and sometimes still feels very foreign to me. As much as I love Korea and I love being there, it also is a very complicated place for me to be because it, it stirs up a lot of emotion. It does. Um, so it, it's not a fully like warm and fuzzy hug. It's a hug nonetheless. And it's the hug that I want every now and then, but it's not it's not completely a positive thing. It it comes with bittersweetness for sure. I think my last question to you um, that I'll have for this time together is I have loved hearing so much about your pride that you have in your identity and in your adoptee status and you're proud now. And I've just, I heard that and I just felt so inspired by that because I don't know that I'm there quite yet what are some of the things or advice or what would you say to people who are maybe struggling to find the pride? What helped you get there? I think first was understanding that being an adoptee is traumatic, right? And accepting that, understanding that it's okay, um, that that's part of your journey that's what helped me get through it is finally understanding that or, or, or admitting the trauma that I was feeling um, and what was at the root of that trauma. Um, and I wasn't alone in it. And when, you know, when I think about the, all the adoptees that I met in Seoul, when I went um, and listening to their stories and listening to their journeys, it was like, Oh, well, okay. I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. Um, I am special. I am very, very special. Um, and I have something that other people don't have, you know. Um, and coming through the trauma makes me strong. I have that strength that other people don't have. Um, as adoptees, having experienced that trauma, we, we, we definitely are special. And we've spent so much time trying to explain that to other people rather than just saying, look, 
we don't owe you an explanation, <laughs> you know, um, because you've never lived a day as an adoptee. So it's, you know, it's that old saying, unless you walked a mile in my shoes, don't judge me. Tracy, you mentioned, you know, that if you're not an adoptee, there are things that you just don't understand. And you and your form had written about community and how valuable it's been to hear other people's vulnerability and to see their stories and to connect. And I know we're all so grateful to have you in our community now, too, and to have met you and heard your story. And I would like to know, you know, regarding the adoptee community, what are your biggest takeaways from the community? What are any imparting messages that you have for the adoptee community? Um, do you feel like there are places that we still stand to grow? Do you feel like there are things that we should celebrate more? I, I think one of the things that I've, I've learned is that th there's so much common thread. All of us feel the same thing. Um, and it's, for me, it's been my safe place. Um, I don't feel like there's anything that I can't say um, or, or no feeling that I have to hold back in the community. And for me, um, that's something I've never had before where I could openly say exactly how I feel um, and not worry about, is it the norm? Is it just you know, the party line. Um, I have seen so many different varying opinions, uh, feelings about it. Um, but at the same time, we all embrace each other. And, and for me, I would not be this far without that community. Uh, finally have found that safe space. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. I, 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 my only regret is that it took me this long to find it. Uh, um, I think we just keep growing, we keep sharing, uh, we keep encouraging each other. Um, we're only going to get stronger. And that's the beauty about this community is, is always the message, no matter what, no matter what the opinion is, the message is always be encouraged, be encouraged. So, um, and I get a lot from that. I mean, it's the first thing, you know, you open up, Facebook, you open up, first thing I go to is what's up today in the, in the community. And it's beautiful. You meet beautiful friends, you know, um, I've connect, made connections with people that I've never met them, but we communicate a lot, you know, just through, through text, through whatever. That would be my takeaway for it. First time I felt truly a part of something. And I really appreciate you guys letting me share my story in, in sharing my feelings. It's, it's instant therapy. <laughs> so thank you guys so much. You're so welcome. That's music to our ears, right? We're, we always come on and we're like, it doesn't matter, you know, how we're feeling. We can have an off day. And as long as we jump on the call, we always, all, I think all walk away feeling like we got a good mm -hmm. cathartic, you know, hour in for the day. No, I truly appreciate it. So this has been my pleasure for sure and an honor for me. So thank you. It's been so wonderful having Tracy. You can find Tracy on social media. You can find Tracy on Instagram at China, C-H-Y-N-A underscore doll underscore 75. 
And on Facebook, she is Tracy Hewitt Hobson. You can also see her documentary that was aired in Korea. It can be found on YouTube. We'll make sure we include the link. And we hope that you follow us as well. We are at Soul Conversations on Instagram, and you can check out our website, www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And we hope to see you all in just a few short weeks at Con. We will be presenting. And Tracy, are you going to Con? That's a, it's in Colorado, right? It is. You can spend more yeah. time here than just being in the airport. airport I know. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. Um, I was trying to work out the dates. I think I'm actually going to be on my way to to England during that period. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to figure out whether I was going to be able to, like, like you said, stop through the airport real quick and. <laughs> there are a few things better than con, but England, England is probably one of them. I would go yeah. to England. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone, and we will catch you in two weeks on our next and final episode of the season. Woo. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.